plague has affected all sorts of people in all sorts of ways, and our next guest on Rights, Rorts and Rents would normally be at Monash Uni in Melbourne, where he's Director of Education in the Business School. Associate, Prof Associate Professor Nick McGuigan, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, the first question, Nick, is how did you become marooned in Katoomba? Fascinating. Marooned, <laughs> uh, fascinating question, Nick. Really interesting. Um, we, while Melbournians got kind of locked into Melbourne, we ended up getting locked out of Melbourne. So um, we were doing some work up in Sydney for the last sort of two weeks or so around the, the kind of end of June, beginning of July period, and then Melbourne went into lockdown. And um, we were coming up to the mountains to visit a good friend of ours, permaculturalist Rosemary Morrow. And um, for, a, for a week of holidays, a bit of laughter and some big discussions, and that week turned out to end up being months, um, where her house is turning into a hub of activity at the moment. Right, okay. <laughs> well, I guess one of the things you've been doing while you've been stuck up here is you've been, I gathered, working on a business master's course for indigenous students here in Katoomba. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's, um, we're really excited to launch the Masters of Indigenous Business Leadership Program. It's a um, master's program that we've worked, the Monash Business School is working in collaboration with the William Cooper Institute at Monash University to create this new form of indigenous business leadership program, which is for indigenous business owners, community leaders, um, wanting to take their career really to the next level. And so we're offering a two years part-time master's course, which is trying to develop uh, immersive learning experiences. Um, so for, for individuals w wanting to, to kind of engage in that space. And so what we found in kind of the, the Melbourne area, obviously what's going on at the moment, we're starting to think about where physically we might be able to put this, um, to launch this program in February. And so I'm tasked now to try to think about a, a physical location for where that course might happen within the New South Wales Sydney region. And so it would be amazing if we could bring that to the mountains. I was say it could be up here. It not, could be not, up here. Not certain, but it could be. Oh, that sounds... I mean, can you give us an example of the sort of business you're talking about, you're thinking of? I mean, I know it, it could be wide, but... Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So we've got three different um, integrated units that we're doing from the business school, and then we've got perspectives from design, from arts, and also from um, health and, and those kind of things, and bringing those perspectives together so that we're thinking about future leadership programs for Indigenous people led by Indigenous people. And so it's a mixture of, of both perspectives that they th are kind of exposed to different case studies from Indigenous-owned businesses, but also from other organisations. And we see that that, that kind of um, group, the Indigenous business-owned companies in Australia, is the, the fastest-growing industry that we have they are. they are and so you know to assist with board roles and all of that kind of thing this master's program will be kind of tapping into that kind of environment and trying to provide support for those individuals yeah all led by indigenous um academics as well as indigenous business leaders so it'll be case studies um that are we kind of get into deliver that material can you think of specific businesses that Yep, so Oz Supply Trade is a really good business to be thinking about. They transformed their operations during COVID to now be producing hand sanitizer. Right. And so they were able to connect into the Woolworths environment and got some really large contracts right across Australia. And now they're one of the biggest suppliers of that particular product. Sure. So, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's no secret that there are hard times for many people now and there are more hard times are coming. So far, the introduction of Job Keeper and Job Seeker is 
has really softened the blow of the pandemic for, for many people. But as we know, that money is now being reduced and, and eventually the doles likely to go back to $40 a day below the poverty line. How do you see the future now of the country? You know, really, to be honest, how bad do you think it can get? You're 100% right. And I, without painting a very dark picture, I don't think... I'm, I'm quite concerned about the future of Australia. And the, the reason I say that is... Of course, JobKeeper and JobSeeker has certainly softened the blow of hardship that people are facing and are likely to continue to face, but it is quite complicated. So if we think about COVID-19, it's uncovered really, for, for me at least, how dependent Australia is on open borders and good relationships with its trade partners. So if we, if we look at 2018-19 data from DFAT, we see that the top five areas of exports for us are iron ore and concentrates, coal, natural gas, education-related services, which is obviously affecting myself, and also personal travel and tourism. And so if those are our top exports, we see that education now with international students, the, the international tourism, obviously they've come to almost a halt, a complete halt. We're trying to do what we can with borders being closed, but these top five exports are also highly dependent on good relationships with one country, which is China. And if we think about, if we, you know, if we look at that same set of data, Australia's top export markets are China, Japan, and the Republic of, of Korea. And so 32.6% in 2018-19 of exports are going to China. Now that's a 10.5% growth trend in the last five years. A third of Australian exports, obviously then, are, are in one country, and then we start to engage in a little bit of political argy-bargy in that particular country. Overall, it seems like a very vulnerable and risky monoculture that we've created that is highly dependent on free trade and travel. Um, geopolitics and COVID-19 might end up pushing that to some form of collapse. So, and yeah, no, it, 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 it's grim and it, and it obviously could get a lot worse. And as you say, things with China don't seem to be getting any better. <laughs> but you also see the plague as an opportunity. Um, yeah. You believe that for all the bad things it's given us, the pandemic can provide an opportunity, for example, by creating bioregions. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's really an interesting point. So obviously with any type of collapse or, or crisis or, or difficult times, of course there's going to be opportunities that might come from that. And maybe it's about looking back into our local areas. Um, COVID-19 has, has really uncovered how dependent we are on national and international supply chains. And in some way we need to disrupt that within local kind of environments. So even if we think of one example within Australia, bananas coming from Queensland, we often forget that the transport for those bananas relies almost exclusively on trucks. Now, Australia imports around 90% of its refined fuel needs. That means Australia could be brought to its knees within a week if there's a major interruption of, of fuel supplies. So it may, obviously bananas w will become more expensive and very hard to get. So the idea of a bioregion really in a nutshell is to be focusing, um, reducing our dependencies on, on outside our local areas and really focusing down onto the local. So to become more resilient to such shocks as relocalizing the supply of essential goods and food. Really thinking about how we access local food, how we access local materials and resources and making use of those all the time as much as we possibly can and then going outside of our local region. So the bioregion would be, for example, the mountains area. To what degree can we become self-reliant uh, self and regenerative within that particular focus? Now, you've been staying here for quite a while now 
and you've, you, you've been staying at the home of a person who's well known for her permaculture practice. Um, what sort of things are you thinking of if you talk about as just integrating uh, and creating local produce, local ways of working? How would it work in the Blue Mountains? How yeah. would it work? It's, it's really an interesting example. So it's, it's probably about mapping. The idea would be to map local areas to see what resources are there and to see what gaps we have. So thinking about food and support systems, shelter and buildings, livelihoods and support services, community and security, social lives, health services, exactly what we have, and then expanding out from that point to, to make those connections. So if I think about the house I'm staying within, in terms of the, the local, how, how can you grow within that local environment? How can you reuse supplies all the time? Thinking about what resources you can access and where you can get them from. How can you, sh even social interactions, how can you create those kind of skill swapping and sharing of resources rather than having to buy things all the time or consume the way we are? So, for example, do we all need to have, I mean, rosemary's, a, you know, it, you can't use that example because there is no such thing as a lawn, right? But this Australian uh, kind of connotation with, with the lawn mowing, why do we all have to have lawn mowers? Why can't we have a shared bank of resources? resources of those materials within our local streets and we can start to swap and share and, and really think about the way we're consuming and the way we're using our resources. Now, what about food produced locally? Could more food be produced locally? I think it has to. I think we really need to start thinking about how we grow our food, where we get our food from, and start to be thinking about how we can change that. Because one of the things I heard someone say about, you've heard probably a lot since you've been here about Badgerys Creek Airport for all sorts of reasons. But one of the great ironies, all, all around there used to be market gardens producing food. And I heard someone say, well, one of the great things when this airport's up and running is we'll be able to fly fresh food in. You're flying fresh food into a place which used to create, grow food locally. Nick, we have, to, we have to rethink. We have to really change the way we think. Those models in terms of flying things in and this uh, to me is a, is a multinational 1980s style mentality. We have to rethink and change the culture in which we operate. But, and uh, it, it bushfires are a really good example of that climate change. All of those things are pushing us to, I hope, if we're, we're aware in some ways, of really starting to rethink our actions and the way we, we consume and the way we think about those things. Because the, the solution is not flying things in. I gave the example of the fuel requirements for Australia, if things really tighten and get difficult, that is not going to be an option for people. You, we have to be starting to think about where we can grow food, balcony usage within modern cities. If food just needs to be everywhere. Rip up the, the front lawn like Costa does in Bondi and start creating these food corridors. That's what we need to be doing. Now, I, I suspect there's quite a lot of people who think, oh, that's pretty fanciful. It's not going to happen. I did see the other night uh, David Attenborough's latest documentary. I don't know if you've seen that, but half of it is painting a very grim portrayal of where we're going, mainly because of our consumption uh, and the loss of wilderness. But at the end, he puts forward solutions, which he said actually are all possible if we wanted to do them. And, and one of them is the thing you're talking about. And th there were in that documentary intense ways of growing food in the future, ways which we, we, we generally, I, I suspect, seem to think you know, food has to be in broad acre in, in big fields, but there's all sorts of different ways of doing it. Absolutely, and permaculture is a really good kind of example of that, where you can start to you know, grow big amounts of quantity based on small amounts of land, mm. definitely. 
I did see that documentary of David Edinburgh. What I found interesting at the end was part of that solution being very technologically focused. And what I think we forget about in business is, you know, our mentality in business is technology will solve this. It's, a, it's again that kind of colonial expansion into other areas, space, for example, or different planets. It's all about technology will provide the answers, but we forget that we live within an ecosystem and technology will only enable something if we've got the environment in which we can live in. And so I think we do need to start to rethink some of those things. Things are possible. We just need to start that behavioural change. And I think that's where education comes in very much. Well, that's also where you come in in terms of the accountant. Now, the accountant, you know, if you stereotype accountants, they're pretty conservative people. You think there are ways of looking at that work entirely differently and, and, and therefore the way corporations should work as well. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, oh, I think so. I think... Um, I mean, you don't look like an accountant to me. That's no, nice. thank you. <laughs> I take that as a compliment, <laughs> perhaps. Um, it's, it's interesting with accounting. I think accounting is one of probably one of the most conservative professions that we, we kind of have. But there's clearly a reason why we're conservative, because we handle other people's money in a way, and we have a stewardship role with that money. So in some ways, if you do look like a marketing professional or you look like an artist or something like this, people might not trust you with their money. And in, in doing so, that comes, in my view, with a sense of power or there's a power relationship to accounting that we often, I think in society and in the public, we don't give it enough time. We don't give it enough seriousness in a way. We do have a very powerful role. And what I mean by that is we as accountants socially construct some of that decision-making that impacts people's daily lives, really. I mean, it's us accountants that are defining what an asset actually is. And we've sort of moved to a situation where a tree is worth more financially dead than it is alive. And it's that short-term thinking based on a religion of profit and profitability that I think we really do need to change. Well, it's, it's a big job, uh, and an even bigger job you've had uh, and do have, uh, I gather one of your areas of research is looking at banks and how they behave and trying to improve that behaviour. We, we say this when, and very recently, Westpac, what did they have a pay a fine for over a billion dollars for money laundering? And because they're not alone, it's a huge job you've got on your hands if you're going to change that culture, surely. Absolutely, 100%. So the banking project we did was quite a few years ago. We were actually looking at the, um, during the global financial crisis, we were doing this work. And we looked at the banks pre the global financial crisis and then we looked at them afterwards. And what we were very interested in doing was to think about, analyse the disclosures on responsible lending principles, both pre-global financial crisis and then post. And what we found in that work was that, yes, they were saying a great deal. They wanted to make those disclosures. They were working on those projects, etc. But it was a lot of talk. In fact, even the auditors of some of that non-financial information was sort of acknowledging the fact that they're saying they're going to do anything, but when are you actually going to action, right? And then, of course, I mean, given, I think that's really important to make that point, that was back in 2008. So what now what we're seeing with the Royal Commission in 2018, 10 years later, and then, of course, what's happened now with the money laundering, etc., obviously that behaviour hasn't shifted to, to, you know, to any real, no. real degree. So when the Royal Commission into banking occurred in 2019, we ran a panel discussion in it with industry in Melbourne CBD. Yep. And we were really looking at it from a very different angle. We were looking at it from a design perspective. And so we put a designer on the panel along with other banking and 
and also accounting and auditing professionals. And we were asking that question, how can you design for good governance? And this is, in my view, this is not specific to the large banks alone. This is governance more generally. How do you create a governance or leadership program, uh, kind of ability around a boardroom table that takes into account financial, ecological, and sociological impacts? And how do we get that more holistic decision-making? And so when you talk about my work, my work now is really about trying to shift that view or that culture globally within our profession because coming back to the power of accountants, we think if we can change the way that we account for things, it will change the behaviour of corporations. And that's what's really needed. That would have a major impact in terms of global emissions and, and all of the things that we're, we've been talking about. A huge job. But do you see any signs of, of hope there? That, you know, what's, I mean, one thing that strikes me is bankers, no matter what they've done, they very rarely go to jail. <laughs> They'll pay big fines. So in a way, they can afford to pay the fine. So in a way, they're still getting away with it. But... There are areas where you see that people can change them because you're getting, what, investors and customers. Yeah, exactly. So investors and customer pressure, for sure, can have an impact. I mean, the, idea, the whole divestment movement is to move away. That we're saying as consumers that we're not interested, you know, we're not going to play that game anymore. We want, we want something a bit more reliable, thanks. And so, of course, that can be that investor pressure and it can be the consumer pressures that would help in that respect. But I, I have noticed change. In the time that I've been spending globally with the accounting profession, I have noticed that there is change. We now have the International Integrated Reporting Council set up um, and their whole mandate is around this idea of integrated reporting where we start to look at six different capitals of an organisation and try to find ways to integrate that language so that we are creating an accounting system where we're creating an accounting report that is more holistic in nature. So I often describe it to my students really as like opening up the house like a doll's house that you play with as a, as a child where the house is the kind of the organisation and it's about opening up that organisation to see a much more holistic perspective. So we're talking about rather than transactions, we're probably talking about interrelationships and how, we're, how that is coming together in an integrated way to see inside the organisation and make more holistic decisions. Uh -huh. Can you think of any companies that are doing that? Oh, there's a lot of companies doing that. So um, NAB was actually one of really? NAB was one of the Australian forerunners in the, as case study projects. So was Microsoft globally, and the the best example I've ever seen is SAP, which is a digital software solution program in Germany, and they actually have this kind of digital interface where you can play around with relationships. So if something happened, you can see what the impact is on the financials as well as the uh, ecological impacts as well. And so you can actually see the balancing of the different capitals. So there are some interesting things that are happening globally in that space. And I, I think what's in, what for me has been the most fascinating is the fact that now we're starting to see a bit more movement within our profession. There's an opening of an awareness that this stuff needs to be part of the accountant's job. And I think those early cases, for example, with, with NAB was a really good example, until they moved integrated reporting into the mainstream accounting space, people would not take that seriously within the organisation. So there was a kind of a legitimisation process needed to happen. I think we've moved in that positive direction so that us in our profession realise that we need to connect and bring that information into the decision making. Now, going back to that sort of stereotype of the accountant who, you know, used to be satirised, people make fun of the accountant. Yeah. You've also done work to actually open it up, make it a bit more of a diverse profession. 
trying to, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I work probably more now with artists in a way than I do with accountants. So what I was fascinated about was this kind of what you might see as two complete opposites, accounting and art, and how you could bring those together. And the reason I do that is because if we're going to really think about visioning a positive future, the arts have such a brilliant way of doing that for us. They can positively vision a future that people want to be part of. And so I sort of tapped into that quite early on, and we ended up creating the world's first artist in residence program at Monash Business School, where we actually bring in an artist to the business school, and we work with that artist. And so the artist lives with us for a period of time to create a piece of artwork inside the business school. And that, what sort of artist was Yeah, well, it's funny. I um, The first project we did was back in 2018 and we had Beck Connery come down, uh, come down to Melbourne from Sydney who's a performance artist and she works in the economics, business, accounting kind of spaces. And she was part of a, a local program called the Marrickville School of Economics which was sort of almost like a piss take of the London School of Economics. Yeah, and it's a really interesting concept. She's bringing in all of these circular economies and all the stuff we don't sort of cover so much in business schools. She tries to look at from an informal education perspective. But the project she ended up doing with us uh, in the business school is a project called Dating an Accountant. And we asked her to go on six different dates with six different accountants. <laughs> and that included our postgraduate student, our undergrad student, one of our staff members, and three accountants from industry. And we asked her to have a salacious conversation about accounting. And really what we were trying to do with that project is explore the languages and the crossovers between art and accounting. Uh, well, how did those conversations go? Well, it's so funny because in accounting, we always think of it as objective. But of course, it's, sub it's subjective. We, we have our assumptions and all of that kind of stuff built inside it. And she makes this line where she talks about accounting as a form of magic. And in some ways, there is magic to it. We are storytelling. We are telling a story of an organization's performance in, in a kind of a particular way. And it just happens to be financial numbers. But it is still an act of storytelling. And at the same time, we think about artists as being kind of, I don't know, aloof and... Um, you know, uh, creative and, and with different mindsets. But actually, there's a real strong discipline to the arts. And it was what was so fascinating is when she was able to bring that discipline to the project and work with our colleagues to try and open people's minds, even to the way that we're researching. So how we can use visual images and analyse visual images as a form of kind of data capture. For some academics, that was completely unheard of before. And so it was really trying to create that nice open space. And the Artist in Residence program gives an artist a, a very unusual space they might not otherwise get access to. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah <for> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it, it's no secret that the Morrison government isn't really too fond of the arts because it doesn't give it any money. It's splashing money around everywhere, but artists of all sorts missed, missed out generally on JobKeeper. But you think, uh, and I think underlying that is often a feeling in some conservative quarters particularly that the arts is a bit of a wank and it's a waste of money and it's not really an industry which is untrue because it is a, a multi-billion dollar industry isn't it i think they've done enough reports to prove that over time but you think also it's important in society the arts are you know when the when the cuts came through in the arts i said to colleagues i said we have to do everything we possibly can to employ local artists and so we've done a number of arts-based projects this year, trying to provide space and time. And I know it's small, but it's a contribution, it's something. And so that, 
I think it's really important for individuals to step up who who might not otherwise consider arts and try to engage with the arts in in, a, in very diverse ways. Try and provide those opportunities because we have to. I mean, we've all been in lo- at least in Melbourne, where we've been in lockdown for a very significant period of time, and it's been very hard on on a lot of different people. But it would be a hell of a lot harder if they didn't have the arts to go to, and that includes all the stuff like Netflix and everything else. Without the arts we lose our humanity. Sure, uh, and when you are a prisoner in your own home, as a lot of people, uh, including my son in Melbourne, it's the one way of escaping, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's a way of escaping and it's a way of imagining alternative futures. And that's what I really like about it. We, we do this futuring project where we do a creative design methodology of futuring with our students. And it, we're really asking them to think about all of these societal trends and imagine what the future of accounting could be like. Because what we found was that students would come in and there was so much media around accounting is going to be disrupted. It's the most disrupted profession. It's all going to be digitalized. It's going to be robotic it's it's all about the machines and they were really quite vulnerable in terms of what their futures might be and so when they actually have that positive kind of arts process that you can take them through to vision what the future will be like it gives them a tangible output in which they can work towards so without it uh, you know it would be a very depressing society it sure would if, it? if you think about it the national budget is the government imagining the future of australia through their budget and what what they're going to spend on what they're not going to spend on absolutely absolutely and as as you know here they they call the mountains the city of the arts amongst other things there are more than the average artists living in houses here of of all sorts Mm. so it it is a big part of you know integrated community yeah absolutely 100 percent finally nick working from home that (laughs) has become the biggest change in our lifetimes for a lot of workers yeah the home is the workplace for many people. And as you know, particularly up here, if you commute to the city, you're up for a four-hour train drive, mm-hmm. train ride every, every day, which is, means for a five-day week, you spend the equivalent of a whole 24 hours on, on a train. Mm-hmm. So working from home is a huge change with a, a lot of long-distance commuters like. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, there are things that still have to be sorted out. There are also downsides to this which some people don't like working at home but what do you think about it and how important do you think this might be in the way we live and the way we do business in the future it's a really interesting question I, it's complex and i say it's complex because it's very different for very different people so you know we it's a broad spectrum you've got people who live in three bedroom four bedroom houses but then you've got individuals who are trapped inside a studio apartment so the experience of working from home i think has been very different for, for a number of people um, with challenges like raising families um, especially when schools are closed and things like this so it's very hard to kind of i guess generalize what that experience has been like i i personally don't think that we would return to the way it was I think that could be an easy option, obviously. But people are are getting used to this. People are seeing that this does bring some opportunities. It increases flexibility. As you say, the idea of lack of travel time, it gives you more time with family. It gives you more time engaging, for example, here in the mountains. You can engage with the local community. You wouldn't be able to do if you were traveling so much. Exactly. I mean, I've done it. I don't do it anymore. But there's two commuter trains, the fish and the chips, and they leave Central (laughs) Station around... No, 5.15. Well, by the time we get to Katoomba Station, it's after 7 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Get home, you have something to eat. 
you, you know, you're knackered really. And um, whereas if you live in the community and work at home, you can be a, a member of that choir, that football team, that political group, whatever. Absolutely. Uh, but also, yeah. you might have a job in the city which pays you over 100,000 a year, and those jobs are very light on the ground up here. So that money you're earning goes back into the local community as well. 100%, yeah. I'm in a similar situation in Melbourne, so we live about an hour and 15 minutes from my workplace. And so I do not, probably not as much of a commute, obviously, as I would if I was based in the mountains going to Sydney, but it's still a relatively long commute. And so I totally understand and sympathise. Like, I'm very glad that I don't have that commute as much anymore. And I agree with you. It's a, you know, in our context, we've got all these stranded assets at universities that are just not being used at the moment. And the whole infrastructure in Australia was about building big and building new. I mean, that is, I think the whole thing is, is really starting to reshape in terms of the way business will, will operate in the future. We've got call centres that was never imagined that you could work with 30 different people in 30 different locations. There's no way those call centres will probably come back to a physical space again. Now, one of the downsides you've just reminded me of, though, is that, of course, once bosses realise they can get you working anywhere, <laughs> that yeah. job might be in Manila. <laughs> or, you know, in Africa, uh, as the call centre is for my internet provider. You know, lovely people, but lots of jobs have gone overseas. Yeah, but I think we were seeing that pre-COVID too. Yeah. That idea of outsourcing, I mean, even accounting firms have outsourced overseas. So I think to some degree, yes, we are seeing more and more of that. Is that healthy for society, do you think? I think it's a mixture. I, my view is I'm sort of not in favour of these border controls in a way. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I, at the university I teach people to be global citizens and yet they can't be global citizens because they're confined to their sure. nation states. Sure. You know, I, to me, the biggest thing for our future is to try to create an environment in which we collaborate, not compete. And that's speaking from a business school perspective right through to a global geopolitical experience as well. We must move as a species, as a... To a more collaborative environment in which we operate. And do you think we're up for it? I Can we do it? We don't have a choice. We have to. These these are things around climate change, food security, all of these major global issues. We're going to have to be able to collaborate if we're going to solve these things because these are big, and they're going to have to be cross pollinating across all sorts of countries, peoples, uh, companies. Everything will have to collaborate to solve these problems. Okay, well, it's been great to have you in the studio. There's one final question. I saw somewhere, because there's, there's a lot about you on the internet in different ways, mm -hmm. but the accountancy perfume. Tell me about that. <laughs> nice. Um, we had a conference back in New Zealand uh, a couple of years ago, and we it was about accounting education and the senses. And so the idea we were trying to position within accounting educators was how could you try to create an experience for your students around the touch, the taste, the smell, the sight, and the hearing of accounting? How could you involve all the human senses in the way that you educate accounting? And as part of that, I, I partnered with a perf local perfumer in in Auckland, New Zealand, to create the world's first accounting perfume. And so I gave her the remit, if, if accounting had a smell, what do you think it would smell like? And it was such a fun project to be working on to try to think about what accounting would smell like. And she, she ended up creating three. She created a sense of um, built around invoices and kind of numbers and late nights. So that was double eight. Double, uh, 8005 was the perfume. And then the other one she created was a more of a vanilla smell that everything is in balance. 
don't worry, rest assured, as an accountant, we will help you and we will design aspects of your life so you can be safe and secure. And then the last one, which was the most popular, was uh, sex power and taxes. And that was a very intense smell, playing on the idea of um, the, the cold, stark exterior of an organisation coupled with um, the kind of plush interiors. So one final question. Yeah, one uh, final question. That sounded fascinating. The, the Gazette reported a couple of weeks ago that your university and Western Sydney is going to open some sort of little campus on uh, what was Katuma Golf Club. What do you know about that? Yeah, so that's been really interesting. It's not going to be a campus. It's going to be a leadership centre. And the idea is that the Blue Mountain City Council has used the golf site and they're also using the old library site. The old library site will become a co-working space for individuals working. So again, to that question around working from home, there'll be this space in which you can sort of make use of to be working in different areas. The site at the golf course will be a type of regenerative site that will look at the ecological, sociological and the economic side of things and be like a living test site, for example. So for us, it'll be like an immersive space in which we can run short courses, both from a professional leadership perspective, but also bring students to that for, for study tours. So we're very keen about that. So the Monash Sustainable Development Institute is working on that project. We're also very, very interested to engage with study tours where the business school will bring students to that site to be engaged with local study tours that would explore the local indigenous groups and indigenous businesses. So we're very, very excited about that upcoming. That's good. Well, well, because of that, we're going to see you again. Absolutely, 100%. We look forward to seeing you again. Thanks very much for coming in. No problems, Nick. Thank you so much for having me.